Le Vietnam brûlait, moi je hurle Mao, Mao Johnson rigolait, moi je vole Mao, Mao Le napalm coulait, moi je roule Mao, Mao Les villes crèvent et moi je rêve Mao, Mao Welcome to Michael and us, I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage, welcome back, everybody, and uh, happy inauguration week. By the time you're listening to this, uh, the coronavirus will be over. The Trump era will be over. The kids in cages will be free. Speaking of decaying institutions, this week I revisited the last James Bond movie, Spectre. Is that really a decaying institution? I, I like the new James Bond movies, actually. It's not James Bond that's decaying so much as the institutions that he represents. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I watched Spectre recently, and I watched Skyfall recently, and I also watched The World Is Not Enough with Pierce Brosnan. Less said about that one, the better. Well, I was going to say, if we ever do uh, a Bond film on the podcast, which I actually think we should, we should avoid all of the Daniel Craig ones because they're actually just kind of fun and entertaining movies, whereas the Pierce Brosnan ones are incredible. And I don't mean in a good way. I mean, I remember watching those kind of age 12 and being like, wow, this is so cool. Like, if you've watched any from the Brosnan era now, they are so outdated. They are so of the 1990s. In a way, they actually feel more outdated than like the ones from the 60s and 70s i actually think that die another day might be my favorite bond movie just because <laughs> it's so extreme it's got everything you would want from a bond movie just cranked up to such an extreme it has so many gadgets so many stupid gadgets they've even got an invisible car for god's sake is that the one where there's like a sequence with like terrible cgi where a sort of like surfing on his windshield <laughs> right right like a laser from space like melts a glacier yeah i mean how do you not like that <laughs> the last two bond movies you know they're very serious bond movies they're post 9 11 they're they're post christopher nolan bond movies and so so much of them are about is james bond himself still relevant is her majesty's secret service still relevant and there's so much about the institution mi6 so it's like you know judy dench going before some sort of tribunal to answer for whatever whatever mission they've botched or it's uh, inspector ray fines who now plays m his department is being targeted by this like young hotshot who thinks that everything needs to be done by drones now and this young hotshot is really investing in surveillance and this really bothers M. And M in this movie is positioned as like the champion of democracy, <laughs> which which is is so funny. So <laughs> we 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 need the deep state to save us from Google and Amazon. Okay, but that is actually the thesis. <laughs> these movies spend so much time putting these characters in front of courts or you know in front of various meeting rooms to suggest that they are accountable in some way. And there's a scene where Ray Fiennes is you know debating with this with this young guy, this uh, drone surveillance guy, and he says something like. Listen, I'm not an idealist. I understand that surveillance is a fact of life and always will be. What matters to me is who's doing the surveying. So, I mean, that's great. That's really funny right there. But then he says something like, you want to have drones doing all of this? Well, let me tell you, we research, we assess, we do everything that a drone does. But what we also do is look the person in the eye and pull the trigger. <laughs> Can a drone do that? You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And and that's so funny because it reminds me of this Clint Eastwood movie from about 10 years ago called Trouble with the Curve, which came out right after Moneyball, okay? And Clint Eastwood's like the old baseball coach. And there are all these like young whippersnappers who want to make baseball like a numbers racket. Like, oh, well, here's this young player who, you know, he's hit this this number of home runs. And so he must be a great player. But Clint, he's like, no, that that's not how you do it. You got to you got to look in their eye. It's 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 what's in their heart. It's what's in their soul. You can't put a number on that. And of course, at the end, it turns out he's right. And Spectre does the same thing, except for, for killing people. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I don't really remember Spectre. I mean, I remember enjoying it because I, I just enjoy them on the level of being sort of fun, relatively, I think, anyway, non-pretentious blockbusters. Quantum of Solace, I think it's that one that has where Bond basically saves like the Evo Morales regime from like an oil company. Exactly. Yes. I mean, it's shockingly prescient. That like film. that's that's pretty good. <laughs> I'll take Bond. Uh, Daniel Craig is Bond over Jack Ryan. I'll tell you that much. 
I do like how these later Bond movies, you know, it's no longer just like one crazy guy with a space laser anymore. It's like most of the villains are just bag men who are just transporting sums of money for, for more powerful, more shadowy organizations. Another reason I like the Daniel Craig Bond films is because he's totally jacked. And I respect that much more than the uh, Pierce Brosnan Bond. Well, that took me a little while to get on board with. <laughs> Because, you know, I grew up with Pierce Brosnan and I was always under the impression growing up that ultimately James Bond had to be suave. That was the the first and foremost thing he needed it to be. I mean, you have to understand, Daniel Craig was the first jacked Bond. There had never been one before that. It was always like a pretty boy in a tuxedo. A pretty boy or like an old guy in a tuxedo. But yes, I do think Daniel Craig is the best Bond. I can say that having seen all of all of them recently. And I think he's the best one because he's the most opaque Bond. It feels like there are great depths that he's not giving you access to. He's a man who's cut himself off from his own emotions in order to survive. And you're not sure if there even is an inner life in there anymore. Whereas with Pierce Brosnan, it's all on the surface. And Pierce Brosnan does two things. He either says a funny joke in a smug way, <laughs> like he'll throw a guy into a printing press and he'll go, oh, they'll print anything these days. Or he'll do extreme serious or extreme hurt acting, where he goes like, <laughs> so you were the one who betrayed the organization and did this and did that. <laughs> Wow, that's a really good uh, Pierce Brosnan, Will. Thank you. What's the film that ends with, like, he's hooking up with Denise Richards or something, and then and her name is Christmas, and then he says, I thought Christmas came only once a year. <laughs> that is The World Is Not Enough, which I <laughs> saw a mere days ago. <laughs> I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Well, obviously, I was joking off the top about uh, the new administration being sworn in, uh, you know, marking a clean break with everything that came before it. I mean, I think a new presidential administration, you know, particularly in the present climate, you know, it's it's a bit like how we celebrate New Year's and we, we imagine that, you know, 2021 is going to be completely different than everything that came before it. And then, you know, a few weeks into 2021, it's like, no, it's actually... Uh, uh, everything is still locked down. I can't go outside. I can't uh, can't see any of my friends. Now, obviously, this is an imperfect analogy. I mean, with any luck, we're going to get, you know, Biden will hopefully do some executive orders to, if nothing else, reverse some of the grotesque parts of Trumpism pretty quickly. Although it's hard for me not to even be cynical there because, you know, Biden is on record in the past few weeks saying, like, I think some of my progressive friends really, uh, you know, overestimate how much I can do by executive order. But over the course of the next few weeks, if not, you know, Wednesday of this week, I think we will kind of gradually start to feel like we're in some kind of, I mean, eras may be the wrong word, but, you know, a new phase. Let's keep it, keep it neutral sounding like that. You know, a new, a new phase of things. One thing I think we talked about on a recent episode was how, uh, how the prevalence of Trump just kind of as, so as something and someone that you think about almost every hour of every day, you know, at least once. Uh, how that's just going to be gone. I mean, I think back to 2008, or I guess early 2009, um, after Obama was sworn in. And just, uh, I remember a moment when it hit me that, you know, I hadn't thought about George W. Bush, who'd been, you know, as a teenager, my main bogeyman. I remember it just hitting me, wow, I haven't thought about him for, for weeks. And I don't know, I mean, we can't say whether that's actually going to be true with Trump. Although, I mean, right now, I mean, I feel like he hasn't really... Has he even relate, released a state? I mean, he's still the president. He could release a statement like through the White House. But since he got his Twitter taken away, I feel like he hasn't really said anything. The things that make people really upset about him tend to be the more off the cuff remarks. And he seems to have had his ability to broadcast those remarks taken away from him. So what does it mean to not have him as an active presence in your psyche anymore? Does that mean like it actually does to some extent, revert back to just 2008? I've wondered about two radically different possibilities for, you know, how the next few months will play out um, and kind of what the cultural mood would be. I, I think it's, it's very much an open question. I mean, the first is like the back to brunch one, which was kind of what Biden's whole political appeal was based on. And I think I told you recently, perhaps it was on mic, about how, you know, watching cable news during the Capitol storming, I think I viscerally understood Biden's appeal for the first time uh, in a way I never, never had, you know, and I obviously don't mean that. I don't mean for that to sound positive. It's just that after 45 minutes of cable news, I was so anxious and my brain was so melted by just kind of the tone of everything. I understood for the first time just the strength of Biden's appeal in that his whole promise is that he's going to notch everything down. 
down. He's going to take the temperature of all this down. And if you're somebody who's watched, I mean, this was, I probably watched 40 minutes or an hour maybe of cable news. If you've watched 10 hours of cable news every day for four years, I can't imagine what that does to your brain. So, so one possibility, right, is that Biden is a successful president not in an actual meaningful sense, but in the sense of delivering on his appeal. And I actually do think there's going to be a strong desire for that just because it's it's what people want to see. I mean, almost regardless of, of circumstance, I mean, regardless of what actually happens and how things play out. One of the things that has frustrated me about Biden as somebody who has written a lot critically of him is the way that he often eludes kind of reality. I mean, there people are able to have particular impressions of who he is and what he represents, kind of regard, almost regardless of what he says or does, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, something I cite all the time is like, you know, the Trump era for a lot of people, you know, it's represented this kind of exceptional like demise of the truth. And I do think it's relevant in that context when people have been so agitated about the fall of the truth, uh, the, the destruction of evidence-based policy, you know, the prevalence of truthiness over truth and, you know, the success of political demagogy on Trump's part over objective reality. I think it matters that Joe Biden is a pretty well-documented, like, pathological liar. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, his in matters of degree, it's nowhere near Trump. But he said so many things that just don't stand up to basic factual scrutiny. I mean, there was his whole story about, you know, going on some official Senate visit to South Africa to visit Nelson Mandela and getting arrested. And it just wasn't true. <laughs> He just made it up. And I mean, if you care about objective reality, I think that should matter. I think things like that should matter. And with Biden, I mean, we've seen over and over again how they just don't. Um, You know, it hasn't mattered to a lot of people that Biden is so obviously a political throwback. If you want to believe strongly enough that Joe Biden is going to be the most, you know, he's going to be the most progressive, uh, he's going to enact the most ambitious domestic agenda since FDR, if that's kind of what you hear and that's what you want to hear, and more importantly, if it's what you want to think, that's what you're going to click to. And to go back to where I started, so I think this is possibility one. This is how the back to brunch timeline would play out over the next few months, if indeed that's what what happens. But possibility number two, and I started thinking about this after the the storming of the Capitol, uh, is actually that this kind of state of emergency doesn't really go anywhere, right? It, it, It stays with us for various reasons, partly because people are just genuinely shocked because the events themselves are very shocking, but also because there's a certain political utility, you know, kind of bipartisan political utility to kind of maintaining that sense of emergency, that kind of this kind of atmosphere of uh, angst and fear and anxiety. Well, you know, now that you mentioned that, there are a lot of liberals who think of the Obama years as being this almost like idyllic halcyon time. And it's easy to forget how continually upsetting those years actually were. Right. I mean, I mean, they were a very, it was a very disruptive time. I mean, Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street both started under Obama. As early as the first year of his presidency, the Tea Party was on the rise. And those kind of politics were this kind of like ambient headache that were happening for the whole first term. Right. And I mean, the uh, period of excitement with Obama, which was, I mean, it was very genuine. I think anybody who was kind of there, or, you know, almost everybody who was there, except for maybe a few people uh, who were able to inoculate themselves. I was not fully able to inoculate myself as a, you know, a first-year university student. Um, anyone who was there remembers kind of the first hundred days of the Obama uh, administration and kind of this this sense of radical possibility that existed. I mean, completely illusory in retrospect, but it's what you, you know, it's what a lot of people felt at the time. I'm not really sure if that will exist uh, with Biden, and this is why I'm speculating about about these two different possibilities. I mean, I suppose it's possible there will be some kind of synthesis of both, like both politically a kind of sense of emergency and also just sort of a dulling as people kind of switch off because they don't actually want to engage with it. But I don't know, when, when you see articles that are trying to argue, you know, they're trying to canonize uh, the storming of the Capitol as a 9-11 scale of event that seems like part of a very deliberate effort to kind of ma- maintain the shot the sen- sense of shock and the kind of atmosphere of emergency that people were feeling in the days immediately after i think it's still an open question how the republicans decide to kind of play the next few weeks and you know what happens to the impeachment when it reaches the senate you know is it actually serious and I'm, may- maybe even by the time this this airs this will be a completely naive question and i'll look really silly but are people like mitch mcconnell kind of even remotely serious about do they consider it politically advantageous to try to sever Republicanism from Trumpism in, in a kind of grand gesture. So the kind of state of emergency and, and this kind of atmosphere I'm describing could be useful to them uh, for those purposes. It could also be useful to Democrats to kind of discipline their base at a really uh, strategic moment, pivotal moment, which is, you know, the first hundred days when Biden, in theory, you know, as we've been uh, ceaselessly told, uh, kind of bombarded with for months, which is 
Biden is about to enact this, you know, hugely ambitious domestic policy agenda, and uh, you know, which uh, curmudgeonly lefties like me just uh, just you know simply don't want to see and can't comprehend. I think Avenue Two, which is the kind of continued state of emergency, which in some ways is just an extension of uh, you know the Trump era and particularly its final months. You know, it could be very useful to Democrats for uh, for those reasons. So uh, I, I guess we'll see. I found it funny how against this backdrop for the last two months has been this enormous media push of Kamala Harris. I don't think I've ever seen a vice president get this much attention. And it seems like a tacit acknowledgement that Joe Biden is not enough to recapture that Obama-like enthusiasm. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up because, I mean, I think this is one of the, the really key differences between this moment and the kind of parallel moment in 2008. I mean, obviously, there's you know a whole bunch of differences. But, you know, in 2008, Democrats had this, this incredibly popular figure. I mean, a, a figure who was understood to be a sort of world historic figure who, you know, um, had in many ways been an unlikely candidate to emerge as the Democratic nominee, who I think many people, uh, even right up to the last minute, didn't really believe could could win. You know, Joe Biden enters, you know, is entering office under quite radically different circumstances. And uh, the trajectory that we saw throughout the year um, and, and throughout 2019 as well was the Democratic establishment you know, cycling through just this endless roster of, in some ways, disparate candidates, just just hoping that one of them would sort of recapture that energy. I was revisiting some of my writing throughout 2019 recently, and I was struck by just how many kind of pieces I wrote about individual figures. These flashes in the pan, which were so, in some cases, so momentary. I mean, the Beta O'Rourke one is is one of the most incredible examples. I mean, a guy who went in the span of, I mean, weeks, not even, I mean, months kind of, but I mean, we're talking like six to eight weeks, you know, went from kind of being interviewed by Oprah in Times Square and being compared to Robert Kennedy to plummeting in the polls, fundraising, collapsing, trying to start kind of theatrical fights with Pete Buttigieg to just like get generate any attention possible. You know, and, and this is to say nothing. I mean, Beto is one of the A-listers in this roster I'm talking about. You had people like John Delaney, who a lot of listeners probably will not even remember who that is, or will only faintly remember him. Uh, you know, he was this multimillionaire, Mar- former Maryland congressman who had actually been running for president. I mean, by the time the primers really got going, he'd already been running for years. And I was incredibly amused to find, you know, he, he'd opened field offices in Iowa and everything. I was incredibly amused to find when I was looking into him his YouTube videos had, I mean, quite literally hundreds of views. I mean, like fewer, fewer people watch the campaign videos of this multimillionaire former congressman than like listen to our show, <laughs> even the paid episodes, which is absolutely incredible. So, you know, I, I'm not going to run through the whole list, but I mean, I think all of these people uh, were in some ways just the Democratic establishment throwing darts at the board, you know, and hoping that they, one of them would just randomly hit the bullseye, which is, you know, recapturing the energy of 2008 by finding, you know, uh, an attractive political personality and somebody who could function as like the ultimate cipher for Democratic Party liberalism. And obviously the establishment succeeded in in one of its main purposes, right? If not the main purpose, which was defeating Bernie Sanders uh, on behalf of the health insurance companies and and the other interests that fund the Democratic Party. But I mean, they did fail in terms of finding a person to fill the role I described uh, a few moments ago. I mean, they, they did not find another Obama. They couldn't find a figure to relaunch the liberal project. So the best they could do was this kind of nostalgic throwback who could coast on his personal association with Obama. And I think I find this Kamala Harris thing uniquely alienating right now because she's sort of on the cover of every magazine. She was named the co-time person of the year, which I don't think a vice president has ever been named. Beating out the racial justice movement, by the way. Better luck next year, racial justice movement. And I hate to use the word Orwellian, but it really does feel that way sometimes. (laughs) There's this gigantic media and political apparatus saying, you actually love Kamala Harris. Uh, It's not true that she dropped out before the primary started because she was going to come fifth in her home state. You actually love her and you just don't know it yet. And look at her on the front of all these magazines. I expect that from the Democratic Party, but then when the media goes with it wholeheartedly, I find that uniquely alienating. Well, this is kind of what I was coming to because I think the dynamic that's really going to play out, if I had to venture a guess, 
is that, you know, the, the, the narrative of the administration, particularly if Biden ends up being sort of gaff prone and kind of like he was at various points in the campaign trail, you know, the narrative will be that, you know, he's the institutional memory, he's the experience, he's the, the grizzled veteran who can get things done, but also he's the sort of amiable doddering figure who's kind of like the character uh, that The Onion created, the Diamond Joe character. But then Kamala Harris is kind of the heir apparent, you know, she represents youth and novelty and, and that kind of thing if i had to venture a guess uh for what the narrative of the administration is going to be it'll probably be something like that well we have a proper marxist film to discuss uh on on the show today i guess our second episode on the cinema of jean-luc godard before we get to the main event i just wanted to thank our listeners because we've just recently hit uh 900 subs on patreon which i think uh i could sp- speaking for both will and myself was not a number we ever expected to hit i mean uh Will actually had to be talked into starting a Patreon. And even even in the act of trying to talk him into it, I was not sure how well it was going to do. We're, we're incredibly grateful for the fact that anybody listens at all. And the fact that we receive so many messages uh, over the Patreon, uh, on Twitter, and, and email, and elsewhere from people who uh, have told us they you know listen to and enjoy the show, who give us great suggestions about things they want to hear us talk about. It really means a lot, guys. So we're super, uh, we're, we're rarely earnest on uh, the Michael and Us podcast, which putting irony and political cynicism aside for the mo- moment, we want to say a big, uh, a big thanks. And also encourage everybody uh, who listens to the free episodes to consider subscribing and getting an extra episode every week. Thanks very much. It's really appreciated. Je veux faire un film. Pour faire un film, faut de l'argent. Si on prend des vedettes, on vous donnera de l'argent. Bon, alors il y a qu'à prendre des vedettes. Our movie this week, Tu Va Bien, from 1972, is a loaded artifact, and so I think it would be useful to set the table. A case could be made that Jean-Luc Godard is the most important filmmaker of the second half of the 20th century. In the late 50s and early 60s, Godard and his colleagues like François Truffaut, Jacques Rivette, and Claude Chabrol created the revolution in filmmaking known as the French New Wave. When they were critics for Cahiers du Cinéma, Godard and Truffaut railed against the French tradition of quality in cinema, quote-unquote, literary adaptations that were handsomely and anonymously shot by journeyman filmmakers. They championed American genre films, like those of Hitchcock, Ford, and Hawks, as well as the serious, auteur-driven European cinema being made by Bresson, Jacques Tati, and others. Godard's Breathless from 1960 was shot out of the studio in the streets of Paris with a newsreel camera. It was a beautiful film that also did away with certain technical niceties. It's largely credited, for example, with popularizing the use of jump cuts in movies. It was also dense with movie references, and for many of Godard's 1960s fans, it was exciting in the pleasure it took from the history of cinema and in the possibilities of bending the form. But, like Dylan going electric, Jean-Luc Godard left behind the version of himself that his early fans loved. His films had grown increasingly political throughout the 1960s, and the May 1968 upheaval that struck France would lead to the beginning of his militant period. Along with François Truffaut and other big-name directors, Godard helped shut down that year's Cannes Film Festival in support of the striking students and workers. Like a number of other French intellectuals of the period, Godard also took an interest in communist China and began to consider himself a Maoist. Not long after May 1968, he vowed to give up mainstream commercial filmmaking and instead joined forces with fellow filmmaker Jean-Pierre Gorin to develop a genuinely political style of cinema. To quote Godard at the time, The problem is not to make political films, but to make films politically. The films they made were designed to shock viewers out of their complacency. Commercial cinema was part of the system and was designed to uphold the status quo. Characters, plots, three-act structures, happy endings, these things are opiates. Godard and Goran created the Ziga Vertov group, named after the pioneering Soviet documentary filmmaker. We discussed one of these films, British Sounds, way back in episode number 65. Among other things, that film contained a lengthy scene at a production line in a car factory in which the audience was subjected to around 10 minutes of deafening factory noise. 
Artistic strategies like this ultimately didn't convert many hearts and minds, but I do admire the impulse behind the Ziga Vertov group. It's hard to imagine a filmmaker of Godard's stature today so completely willing to rupture the form and immolate his career in pursuit of truer and more progressive art. Godard would eventually return to something resembling commercial cinema in the 1980s, but in 1972, he and Goren tried to meet the audience halfway. Tu va bien was a movie with two big international stars, Jane Fonda and Yves Montand, and a story, albeit a heavily fractured one. It's worth noting that while this is one of Godard's most important films, he was not actually present on the set for any of it. Shortly before filming was scheduled to begin, he suffered a serious motorcycle accident that briefly put him in a coma and left him in the hospital for the duration of production. His direction was largely done at a distance and in pre- and post-production. Nevertheless, it is a film in direct conversation with the Godard and Goran films that came before. It's a more conventionally enjoyable movie than those, but it's also more melancholy and uncertain. And watching it, I wondered if May 1968 felt further away in 1972 than it does now. Now, Luke, I think we both would have seen this film for the first time, and in my case, the only time, in first year intro to film class. <laughs> yeah, that's when I saw it. What did you think of it at the time? I think I appreciated it on a formal level, and actually here I'm going to sound a bit like the guy in Annie Hall who's in front of them at the uh, at the movie, in the line at the movie theater. Like, you know, I admire the technique, and it just doesn't hit me on a gut level. Right. I think that's kind of how I experienced Tuva Bien the first time. You know, I was given the kind of stock take on it, which is that it uses Brechtian techniques. You know, cinema is revealed as, as kind of an artifice through the film's uh, formal techniques and this is part of a you know project to create a revolutionary cinema or something like that that was sort of the line as i understood it and i thought the film uh, did that pretty well uh, i know an awful lot more about a lot of stuff since i uh, <laughs> watched it the first time and i i definitely enjoyed it a lot more the second time yeah i feel much the same way i mean i'm not even sure i knew what may 1968 was when i saw it in intro <laughs> to film class so that that will tell you about how much i enjoyed it at the time well i thought your opening uh, essay there did a good job kind of clearing the ground and you know one of the things that makes this film so distinctive is how it's kind of a synthesis of different sensibilities people associate with godard the period that we looked at last time, I mean, actually, we've never looked at the, the funnest period of Godard on this podcast. You know, we've never uh, we've never talked about his uh, his kind of new wave films like Viva Savi or Breathless, which I guess are still his most uh, his most famous films. The ones uh, people listening are most likely to have seen. You know, we, we've talked about, you know, British sounds and uh, and I think also La Chinois, which are from a phase of his filmmaking that was, uh, you know, extremely opaque and, and uh, you know, which didn't find a wide audience. As the film critic Jay Hoberman put it, Save for small groups of committed militants or abstruse theoreticians, however, most audiences found the combination of recondite ideological hectoring and austere formal rigor all but unwatchable. In early 1971, making an attempt to appeal to a wider audience, Godard and Goren returned to a more populous and less sectarian political mode. So Tuva Bien very much sits kind of comfortably or uncomfortably, depending on how you look at it, uh, between these two modes of Godard. And I think having watched Godard films from kind of both his accessible and, as it were, his non-accessible phase pretty recently, uh, I was able to appreciate this one uh, as something kind of situated somewhere between the two. I'll do a quick run through of what the plot, so to speak, is. The inciting incident is a strike at a sausage factory where the head of the factory, the boss, is trapped by the workers in his office. The two main characters who are first identified as he and her, Susan DeWitt, played by Jane Fonda, and Jacques, played by Yves Montand, are former idealists who find themselves caught up in this strike. Susan is a correspondent for something called the American Broadcasting System, and around the time of May 1968, she became a sort of specialist of the left in France. But in the years since, she lost touch with her ability to report on or even understand the issues at play. 
She, in fact, came to the factory to interview the manager for an article on better management techniques. <laughs> Jacques, meanwhile, is a filmmaker who was once involved in the French New Wave. Now he makes commercials. At one point, he said he was offered a chance to direct an adaptation of an American crime novel, and he decided that making commercials was a more honest form of living. And, you know, not only is May 1968 very much in the rearview mirror of this movie, but so too is, in its own way, revolutionary spirit of the French New Wave. Godard and Francois Truffaut had a very complicated relationship. They were real brothers-in-arms at Calle du Cinema and in the early stages of their filmmaking career. This movie came out, I think, a year before they had a very serious falling out. But at this point, the two of them, who were once best friends, had drifted far apart. Part of that was because of their differing reactions to May 1968. You know, as I mentioned, Truffaut was involved in the attempts to shut down the Cannes Film Festival, but Truffaut eventually felt himself alienated by the strikes because I think I saw a quote from him once where he said something like, well, you know, it looks like a bunch of bourgeois students standing up against, you know, working class police officers. You know, how, how can I support this? Truffaut, go on Pod Save America. <laughs> And cinematically, Truffaut, who is the most zealous of the Cahiers du Cinema film critics about, you know, tearing down the old order and making a new kind of cinema, he had increasingly started to make more commercial, more conventional films, many wonderful films in their own way, films like The Bride Wore Black or Mississippi Mermaid, also films that had the potential to be big hits on the international art house circuit, films like Day for Night, which won the Academy Award for uh, Best Foreign Film, and very much not the kind of movie that Godard was interested in making. I don't know if the character of Jacques is informed or inspired directly by Truffaut, but it seems inspired by the sort of ambient anxieties that a former filmmaker who was in the French New Wave would have had and the sort of resentments he would have had about some of his colleagues who had sold out, so to speak. In addition to Jacques and Susan, there are a number of other characters who are involved in the strike in some capacity or another, many of whom directly address the audience and lay out their positions in a didactic monologue style. There's Marco Gudotti, the manager of the factory. There's the shop steward, who is sort of a middleman between the workers and the management. There are a couple of workers... You know, this isn't directly stated, but I think Jane Fonda and Yves Montand themselves are sort of characters in the film because the movie opens with voiceover narration where a man says, I want to make a film. And then there's narration from a woman who says, you need money for that. You know, you see a bunch of checks being signed on the screen one after another. And then the woman says, if you use stars, people will give you money. And so then you see, you know, Jane Fonda and Yves Montand's checks being signed. So the movie, I think, has a complicated relationship with Jane Fonda and uh, Montand as star personas even within their characters the movie climaxes with an unforgettable shot a single take shot of a riot breaking out in a really sleek and ultra modern supermarket and it's an interesting scene to come after a movie that is so much about how what once seemed possible what seemed within reach during the may 1968 riots had either been peeled back or was always illusory. As one critic wrote, watching Tuva Bien today is like viewing it from a bleak dystopian future, an epoch in which the international left has strayed irrevocably, not just from the youthful utopian idealism of 1968, but also from the resigned but not hopeless confusion of 72. I think that was written uh, maybe five or ten years ago, so it's perhaps a little bit dated, but I think that captures kind of the general atmosphere of the film, which is that it's it's capturing a moment where radic radical possibility still exists, but it is a rapidly receding horizon, uh, and it's 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 nowhere near as tangible uh, as it was only four years before. I mean, even the context for the the strike, uh, which, which is really the instigating uh, incident of the film, very much speaks to this. When you see the uh, the manager talking, you know, he's talking about how you know we don't need all this you know Marxist terminology, you know, power, uh, class, you know, what what is all that stuff? You know, this is the language of the 19th century, you know. European economies have grown, you know, 20 times more between 1945 and today than they did between the turn of the century and 1945. You know, workers don't need to think about themselves as a class. Uh, you know, workers and, and business and management, they're all working together. Um, and, you know, this is kind of also a view that you see some of the uh, union leadership, though not the rank and file members express in the film as well. This is a moment where, the, you know, there are really two visions of the role of labor kind of pitted against one another, one which uh, wants to see see 
know, the working class develop a consciousness unto itself. And another, which is fine with there being working class consciousness to the level of having trade unions, but keeping the trade unions as part of this kind of corporatist structure where they're just one actor among many brokering between uh, one another within the market and the state. I liked one of the things that the shop steward, who's kind of the, the union leader, the middleman between the workers and the management says, he says words to the effect of the union condemns their actions. Such troublemakers only serve the interests of management who are happy to refuse to negotiate under duress and to justify their refusal to budge. And then immediately after he says, Listen, I've spent eight hours a day in this factory, seven days a week. This morning's events were caused by a few hotheads who had already been brought to our attention. Most workers at this factory are responsible people. And then he goes on to outline, you know, the sorry situation for workers, the low salary for laborers, etc., etc., which coming after what he said before is a little bit surprising, but also kind of like bleakly funny because he he's already immediately ceded all ground that he has. He ceded any leverage. He's made clear he's not in favor of any sort of revolutionary action. But by the way, there are still a lot of real problems that we have to talk about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's and this is where, you know, Godard, I mean, the film is in many ways very oblique, but I think in moments like this, Godard's ultimate sympathies and his outlook really come through because this, you know, union bureaucrat is at one point dismissing wildcat strikes as an unhealthy helpful form of militancy and then moments later is making clear that militancy is the only thing that's going to solve any of these problems. Just one final comment about the sort of, uh, I guess, the broader political and economic context for the film and for the uh, the industrial relations uh, portrayed within it. The title, Tu va bien, translates to everything's just great. Uh, and I love that. I love that as a title for all kinds of reasons. But I have a very particular reading of it. I don't even know if this is correct. It seems like the perfect phrase to sum up the sort of blasé attitude uh, that was at the core of kind of post-war prosperity, particularly in the early 1970s, uh, even as there was all this political turmoil and all this working class militancy, this idea that uh, this can just go on forever, that this type of growth that uh, Europeans particularly have known since 1945, and this very much applies in North America too, you know, this can just this can just go on forever. Uh, this model, which combines market capitalism and, uh, and Keynesianism, and to varying extents, some kind of welfare state and some kind of role for trade unions, albeit in most cases, a, a fairly corporatist one, uh, you know, th- this can just go on forever. We've we've solved it. You know, the end of the, the end of history is here, even before, you know, we've we discovered a few decades later, the real end of history was uh, actually after, you know, Thatcherism and, and Reaganism. It was a lot worse than uh, than post-war social democracy. But anyway, I love the obvious sardonic connotation that Tu va bien as a title has, and I feel like it captures so much about the atmosphere, the environment in which the film is set. Now, the Jane Fonda and Yves Montand characters, I think, are included here semi-ironically. They're the sort of device that would have been issued by the previous Godard-Goran films as being, you know, a love story a man and a woman and their relationship set against the backdrop of this class struggle, you know. Well, and the film almost does kind of ridicule that right from its opening titles, right? Or right from its kind of opening frames. Yeah. And so it's funny how the movie very clearly and unapologetically kind of has it both ways with these characters. The strike ends up creating conflict in the couple's relationship. She finds herself, I think, increasingly sympathetic to the strikers, whereas the Yves Montand character continues to recede into his general sense of resignation and disappointment and confusion and hopelessness. And there are some scenes where we see the impact that this has on their relationship. It's expressed in sexual terms at one point where Fonda holds up a picture of a woman's hand holding a flaccid penis, which is used to sort of represent their relationship. I'm curious, how sympathetic do you find these characters? Or is sympathetic even the right word to use for characters like these? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it is, because as you said, I mean, I think they're largely a a device Uh, and they are integral to the thesis of the film if it has one which plays out in kind of the final frames. They're very central to it. Um, Before we talk about that, though, I do think it's worth saying a little bit more about just how formally strange this movie is. I actually think we're probably making it seem a little more coherent just as a viewing experience than it perhaps actually is. Now, I do think, unlike uh, the other Godard films we watched, this is one that if you're in the right mood, you you could have some fun, you know, you could enjoy. Unlike, you know, his kind of late 60s films, I don't think this is one that you have to be immersed in, you know, abstract 
abstract film theory or whatever to enjoy. Well, the factory, for example, takes place on a giant dollhouse set, a a device that I'm uh, delighted to tell you Godard took from Jerry Lewis in his film The Ladies' Man. Now, I just want you to stop there for one second. Folks, if that isn't the most Will Sloan factoid (laughs) that there ever is, somehow combining Jean-Luc Godard and Jerry Lewis. Well, Jean-Luc was a great fan of Jerry. Uh, He at one point called Jerry Lewis the only man making progressive films in the United States, <laughs> which, you know, uh, I, I I believe is probably... These are, they refer, he's referring to the films where Jerry Lewis just sort of runs around cross-eyed. And... I mean, I mean that's a debate for another episode. But please know that my sympathies are entirely with Jean-Luc in that debate. <laughs> but yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned Brecht. I mean, Brecht was sort of like a, a stylistic touchstone for the Ziga Vertov group. So there's constant direct address, constant fourth wall breaking, lots of use of documentary footage in addition to studio footage, a lot of narration from conflicting and in in some cases confusing voiceover narrators. Yeah, and just to uh, impress upon everyone how kind of postmodern this film is, I mean, not only does he use Brechtian techniques, but Jacques at one point refers to the preface Brecht wrote for for his play, The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany. Uh, In that preface, Brecht argues, uh, I'm I'm quoting David Bordwell now, uh, that each art form is controlled not by the artist, but by larger social institutions. In a capitalist society, Brecht asserts, An artist may believe he or she is using the art form for personal expression, but he or she is actually producing artistic merchandise of a kind acceptable to the society. According to Brecht, there is no way to work outside this socially controlled situation, yet one can chip away at it from within by introducing innovations into one's works. Brecht's own approach, he said, was to accomplish through the, quote, radical separation of the elements. The words, music, and staging of his opera Mahogany were not fused into a unified whole, but kept rough and disunified, separate, to prevent the audience from being wholly absorbed in the illusionary aspects of the action. The audience would still be presented a story and characters, but would simultaneously be aware of how the work's formal system was put together. And so in relation to Tu Va Bien, uh, David Borwell writes, in making a film with an ideological stance opposed to the contemporary social system in France, the filmmakers do not simply set forth a radical subject matter. They create a radical formal system for the film, one which might suggest not only new things to think about, but new ways of thinking about them. So I realize that all uh, sounds pretty abstract, but it's manifested pretty tangibly in the film through various techniques, you know, disjointed narration, shots of something being filmed, which show the filming itself as being filmed. There's the opening monologue Will talked about where, you know, the film makes clear from its very outset that it, that it is a film. There's, of course, the famous dolly shot of the factory where it's like a slow tracking shot uh, that shows the factory in cross sections so you can see that it's a set. That's maybe visually the most famous thing about the film. But I actually think that the most powerful use of this is right at the beginning when you hear a voice, which is either Godard or Gorin, thinking out loud about uh, how this film is going to play out and saying, OK, well, if you have to tell a story, I mean, there'd be a there'd be a him and there'd be a her. And uh, but no, that's not enough people. So there'd be people around them. It's like that's not specific enough. I mean, there'd be workers, there'd be farmers, there'd be bourgeoisie, there'd be countryside. There'd be various events happening against the backdrop of all this. You know, there'd be everything. Everything is changing, you know, under under a calm surface and you know as the voiceover is saying this you can see people protesting with big red flags you know workers marching things like that and I don't know I I remember understanding this on a formal level the first time I saw this film but watching it again I was struck by by how powerful this is and how innovative it actually still seems. I mean, to articulate it out loud, uh, in some ways it doesn't sound that uh, innovative or impressive. The act of a film kind of describing its own production process or something like that. But since the ultimate purpose of the film, at least as I understand it, or, you know, it's kind of ultimate message is that People need to develop a kind of consciousness that allows them to, you know, think in relation not just to other people as atomized individuals, but as players caught amidst wider social forces. I think this opening uh, sequence establishes that really, really well uh, and kind of establishes it in a very simple and very non-didactic way. Um, It's probably the least didactic part of the film. And I guess if you were to criticize this film, at least on the level of uh, sitting down and, and enjoying it, you might say that it was too didactic. Yeah, I was interested when you said 
said earlier that the first time you saw it, you were like the guy in line in Annie Hall, you know, not feeling it on an emotional (laughs) level. Because even though it seems like one of those films that's very kind of coldly cerebral, I was very moved by it as a document that comes so soon, you know, just four years after the excitement and promise of 1968. And you get a character like that factory owner saying all of these things that have just you know, it's clear all the promises have been completely neutralized or worked back within the system. Yeah, the the Communist Party doesn't support the Wildcat strike and like the union involved with it, which is the General Confederation of Labor. They, they don't support the Wildcat strike and they're kind of trying to tone everything down. Coming from Godard and Goren, who as recently as the year before were still making radical revolutionary movies, the spirit that this movie captures is particularly powerful. I mean, it's always kind of corny when we bring things back to the present day, but I mean, I think about all the protests that happened last summer and how briefly it really seemed like there was a potential for a kind of mass grassroots movement that might lead to actual change. Yeah, Bernie Sanders winning Nevada. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I mean, that was very exciting. And now, you know, less than a year later, uh, I saw Nancy Pelosi say of the siege on the Capitol, something like those people uh, chose their whiteness over democracy. Which, I mean, you know, I'm sure some of those protesters do choose their whiteness over democracy. But when I hear her say that, it goes to show that, like, the ultimate legacy of of so much of the radical or quasi-radical activity over the last four years. Yeah, it's it's like multi-millionaire politicians sponsored by banks reading Robin DiAngelo. Like, that's the the victory. (laughs) That's the concession extracted from those at the top. The system is so powerful that it can take all of these revolutionary gestures and just find a way to, like... Like internalize and weaponize them. So, I mean, if we're talking about the emotional resonance of the movie, I think it definitely has it. Yeah, you know, I've been enjoying the discussion of the film specifically, but of course, the way you watch anything, especially, you know, a political film, is inevitably inflected with, you know, how you're feeling at a given time and, and you know, the circumstances around you. So, you know, it got me thinking about how, you know, just over a year ago, the debate I was participating in in the context of the, uh, you know, Democratic primaries, which were soon to begin, you know, the kind of center of that debate was around things like should uh, should private insurance, the institution of for profit private insurance be completely abolished uh, or should it have to compete alongside some kind of public option, which was sort of the liberal answer to Medicare for all? Uh, should the institution of billionaires be allowed to exist or should they be subjected to kind of, you know, wealth taxes of a few percent, which was the Elizabeth Warren position? Um, and, you know, there were all kinds of frustration born out of those moments because even the more progressive liberals, it just felt like you just could not get them to understand the, the radical potential of this moment. You couldn't get some of them on side with the Sanders campaign. They were still, you know, holding out hope for this, you know, wonky, uh, this wonky middle way, this kind of combination of uh, soft populism and like anti-monopoly rhetoric and, you know, much more standard suburban Democratic Party style politics. You know, and then today I was thinking about, well, Biden hasn't even talked about the public option in months. I mean, I ha- or barely. I mean, I haven't, he d- it didn't, I don't think he ran a single ad about it. It didn't come up in any, in either of his debates with Trump. You know, the terrain now is what, what concessions, if any, you know, most of them probably sort of defensive or sort of restorationist kind of concessions might be extracted from this new, uh, this new liberal administration, which, you know, has already started populating itself with, uh, you know, a lot of the usual actors. And that is a much bleaker uh, kind of state of affairs to have surrounding you. I don't know what this movie would have been like if I'd have watched it last January. Il y a d'autres gens qui ont un autre avis sur la question. Now, the film's message is, I think, a somewhat ambiguous one. I think the second most famous shot in it, which Will alluded to earlier, you know, after the famous, you know, factory dolly shot, is this dolly shot of a supermarket um, where, among other things, you know, before this uh, kind of riot breaks out, there's a militant from the French Communist Party who's giving out party literature. And when a student asks him a question about the language on the very first page, he very intransigently uh, refuses to answer it or even kind of engage with it at all. And, you know, the, this is one of the things that I think caused the customers to riot. Now, I suppose the obvious reading of this sequence is a very pessimistic one, which is that Godard is saying, you know, in the future, in the near future, radicalism will be something that you can purchase on demand, you know, at a supermarket, just like, uh, you know, a can of beans or fruit. There's a reading of this scene which suggests that, you know, Godard is kind of resigned to the final triumph of consumer capitalism. 
over the radical possibility of 1968. But this isn't actually the final scene in the movie. The final scene, anyway, before there's a little epilogue, centers our two main characters, the journalist and the former filmmaker. And the voiceover monologue suggests that he and her have learned to, quote, think of themselves in a historical context. And if nothing else, this seems to be the the prescriptive uh, element of the film. This seems to be its positive thesis, which is that, you know, no matter what happens, it's always possible to have an awareness of wider social forces. And the broader and more developed that awareness, the more you're able to act against exploitation and injustice. I'm curious what your reading on the thesis of the film is, or even if you think it has one, because I'd forgotten about this final sequence. And uh, when I was revisiting the supermarket one, you know, I was kind of resigned to, uh, you know, this just being a sort of postmodern, you know, the film being a sort of index of postmodern defeatism. But I think I kind of convinced myself that it has a much more positive and optimistic message than that. I'm not sure if this is a direct answer to your question, but what strikes me about Godard's later work is the increasing sense of hopelessness in it that cinema can do anything in the 80s and 90s he made this massive eight-part video series which ran something like five hours called histoire du cinema and its thesis was basically that you know cinema and i'm i'm drastically oversimplifying this but cinema was not there to uh, save us from the holocaust you know it didn't capture the holocaust it didn't record it didn't get the word out about the holocaust therefore cinema is forever tainted and, you know, I, I'm not really sure what I think about that thesis or, or even if I'm doing it justice. But his most recent film, The Image Book, has to do with cinema's relationship with the Arab world and how cinema has oftentimes been a tool of colonialism, a tool of violence, maybe not literal violence. And the feature immediately after called Numero De. Part of it is about a suburban family sort of being dehumanized by capitalism again, to put it very simplistically, but also part of it is about Godard himself assembling these images. You see Godard in his editing studio, basically looking like a defeated man, debating with himself, looking very hopeless. At the end of the movie, he basically has his head in his hands. You know, it's the work of a man who doesn't know what to do anymore. So, you know, he's a man who seems to have given up on revolutionary politics and revolutionary cinema, except for the fact that more than any major filmmaker I can think of, he's been constantly excited by the possibility of image making. Certainly more than any of his contemporaries, he's very excited about the possibilities of whether it's videotape, digital, whether it's cell phone videos, whether it's 3D. He remains on the cutting edge. He's always, and that's kind of the only hope I see in Godard after this. The fact that you can still, you can still make beautiful and powerful images. Well, whatever we make of the thesis of Tu va bien, I don't think there's anything in it as beautiful and powerful as the scene during the wildcat strike where they've locked the manager out of the bathroom when he needs to piss and a worker is casually humming the international but you know we were talking about the mood this movie captures and when i pitched this episode to you i said to you that i didn't think it was a topical episode but funnily enough it really does actually seem to capture a certain mood that i think both you and i have about the impending inaugural it really does feel right now like certain battles that once seemed so exciting have been um really lost and yet there's a taboo about admitting that they are lost. Yeah, incidentally, I, I think I've come up with a good title for the Biden inaugural. Do you want to hear it? Oh, please. Tu va bien? <laughs> <laughs> Ni Dieu, ni César, ni Christ.